Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and today is February 23rd, 2022. And I'm delighted to be here today with Inez Abderazik and Munir Nusebe. Inez is the advocacy director for the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy, PIPD, and Munir is a human rights lawyer and academic based in Al-Quds University in Jerusalem. So thank you, Inez and Munir, for being here. I'm very happy to see you today. Um, we're here to talk about Jerusalem, and, and it's, you know, there's no mystery as to why we're talking about Jerusalem today. Jerusalem has been in the news a lot lately. Um, things have obviously been heating up. We have had recent um, expulsions and evictions, uh, particularly in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. We're having daily protests, which are being met with um, escalating police violence against protesters. And this includes both Palestinian protesters and Israeli protesters, and also some internationals, and also the media um, facing that violence. We had the recent brutal eviction of the Salhia family, and the Salem family's eviction, which has now been temporarily postponed, but not canceled. Um, in addition, we have extremist Israeli politicians actively creating um, a conflict in East Jerusalem. We have a, a far right-wing member of the Knesset who's set up a so-called office in the middle of Sheikh Jarrah, seeming to be deliberately seeking to, to have a provocation. Um, and, and we have plans that are continuing across, across East Jerusalem um, for new settlements, for new land seizures. Um, it seems to be the, the Israeli government's plan of shrinking the conflict in Jerusalem appears to be a plan to escalate and increase um, its activities to, to really um, squeeze Palestinians. So with that as the background, Lots to talk about. Um, I think I want to start with what's most recently and visibly in the news. So Inez, I'm, I'd like, and you're in Jerusalem, both of you. Um, Inez, can you talk to us about what is happening and particularly focusing on Sheikh Jarrah and, and the protests around there, but you're, you're welcome to zoom out further to, to other things happening. Thank you, Lara, and, uh, and good to be with you both today. Um, I think what has been happening in the in the past weeks is a continuation of uh, the assault and the various different assaults against families in in Sheikh Jarrah, but obviously not only in Sheikh Jarrah. I think the media is much more present in Sheikh Jarrah, but there is other uh, neighborhoods that are basically constantly threatened and attacked by uh, a very militarized, you know, border police uh, in Israel and our eventually threatened of being uh, forcibly uh, expelled, transferred, and, and, and these whole areas are eventually, you know, planned to be ethnically cleansed. So I think what has been happening last year and what's, uh, you know, happening today uh, is essentially, uh, you know, one continuation of uh, these different families that face lawsuits by settler organizations that are backed by the Israeli government. Uh, to claim ownership of the the, um, the land and houses, and basically trying to uh, you know annex uh, these these houses and homes and and, and lands. That that's yeah. Thank you. And for anyone who's watching this, I mean, when you talk about things happening all over, if you're watching the news, in if you're looking at more carefully, you see that there's daily reports of home demolitions or self-demolitions where Palestinians demolish the homes themselves rather than face massive fines in addition to Israel charging them the cost of demolishing it themselves. Um, so it's ongoing. Munir, 
can we can I ask you to to unpack a little bit what Inez referred to, which is this effort to take to take away ownership? There, there's there's been media debate with an you know Israeli um, Israeli advocate saying these are just real estate to be. These are just real estate disputes, right? They're governed by law, and and if you're taking sides with this, then you're not understanding. You're you're not respecting the law, or you're trying to politicize what is simply a business real estate dispute. Can you unpack the what what's actually happening here, and and more broadly, not just with these current cases, but with the broader dispossession of Palestinians in Jerusalem, which really dates back to to just after '67. Yes, um, and thank you, Lara. It's an honor to be with you and with Ines on the same panel. Um, um, what has been, what's happening right now is a continuation of what happened not only after 1967, but since 1948, since what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe. Um, during that um, uh, big event, um, uh, Israel uh, displaced 80% of uh, uh, the population uh, in the areas on which Israel was established, of the Palestinian population, the non-Jewish population in the areas where Israel was established. Um, a part of this was uh, uh, the western part of Jerusalem, which was uh, totally um, um, emptied um, from any uh, Palestinian, basically, um, uh, in, the, in the aftermath of the 1948 war. Um, so all the Palestinian neighborhoods in these areas uh, um, um, were, um, um, and, and villages, some of them were destroyed, and uh, some of the houses um, the Palestinian families were displaced from there, and instead, um, um, you know, J Jewish inhabitants have been uh, living in these uh, houses until the current day. Now, um, uh, in 1967, Israel uh, occupied uh, East Jerusalem, and immediately it annexed East Jerusalem and considered uh, this part uh, of the city um, as part of Israel, and not only East Jerusalem, that uh, um, as it was defined in the eve of 1967 war, but uh, additional uh, uh, area um, amounting up, you know, amounting to 70 kilometers square uh, of, of territory. So that's quite a, a huge area that was annexed to Israel, and immediately Israel started applying Israeli law um, in, in that area. Um, and uh, uh, since then, Palestinians have been facing several um, uh, methods uh, of um, displacement, um, moving them from their homes, uh, according to many different um, uh, considerations and reasons and legal, um, um, you know, uh, justifications. Um, and also, we have been witnessing uh, settlements, um, uh, Israel moving uh, um, Israeli Jewish settlers into um, first uh, the area that surrounds the Palestinian neighborhoods. So they um, actually started new neighborhoods uh, and settlements, you know, um, uh, in the area of Jerusalem after confiscating uh, a lot of land from Palestinians, almost one third uh, of, of, of the total area of East Jerusalem was uh, uh, confiscated. Uh, um, to, to build uh, Jewish-only uh, settlements in these areas. But what we're witnessing these days um, is the Israeli attempt to uh, go with, this is a policy that is actually called as such, uh, settling in the heart. And what is meant by that, settling in the heart of Palestinian neighborhoods. So now the uh, settlements that surround Palestinian neighborhoods and surround the city are not enough. This belt of settlements is not enough. Now they want to settle in the heart. And that's why uh, we keep um, uh, witnessing in the news, uh, but also from the reports of uh, 
uh, different human rights organizations, whether governmental, non-governmental, uh, UN human rights organizations mainly also. Uh, we uh, are witnessing um, uh, a number of uh, um, uh, home evictions and, and displacements uh, based on several considerations. For example, there are many home demolitions that are uh, based on uh, the justification that a home was built without a permit. And the Israeli uh, zoning and planning system since 1967 has zoned the city uh, in a way that uh, only encourages um, uh, uh, Israeli Jewish population uh, uh, construction in the city and uh, to a great extent prevents Palestinians from getting permits um, to uh, build new houses. And when they built without a permit, uh, they get a demolition order. Another uh, justification for demolition is um, collective punishment, what is known as punitive home demolition. Uh, in this method of demolition, uh, the Israeli um, uh, authorities would demolish a house of a family because one member of the family is accused of breaching their security uh, regulations, maybe through a stone, maybe um, um, uh, shot a gun, maybe I don't know what, maybe rammed people with a, with a car and then was accused of a, you know, a breach of the security uh, arrangements. Uh, obviously, uh, the human rights community calls this collective punishment because you, on the, you know, despite the fact that they have, uh, in most cases, either punished or killed that person that they accused of breaching their own uh, uh, policies, uh, at the same time, they um, um, uh, punish the family by demolishing the house, causing more displacement. But what we're also hearing now, especially in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, and also uh, uh, in, in some cases, in, in, in certain cases in Silwan, is uh, claims by um, um, uh, Jewish settler organizations, right-wing, that uh, they own um, spe specific areas of land uh, on which Palestinians are living. And uh, the way this works is that they go to um, the Israeli courts, they use the Israeli law and the Israeli court system uh, in order to uh, demand uh, the eviction of uh, uh, Palestinian families. The Israeli court system has basically um, um, considered uh, these cases and approved, um, even with little evidence in many cases, um, the, the claim of ownership to the settler organizations, and then considered the Palestinian communities uh, and, and uh, um, families living in these areas as uh, tenants. And now uh, they are being evic uh, given eviction orders uh, based on the uh, argument that they are tenants. Of course, um, it is important here to mention that uh, annexation of an occupied city uh, is illegal international law, but also the applying of um, the, the occupying power's own law and the um, jurisdiction of its own courts in an occupied territory is also illegal international law. So if anybody has a claim uh, on a certain piece of land, there is nothing uh, in international law that is against uh, anybody making that claim, of course, if the claim is fair. But this claim should be um, made uh, according to the local laws in the occupied territory. So, so in this case, it should be the Palestinian laws, uh, as well as uh, local courts. And in this case, it would be Palestinian courts. But what is equally important is that while the Israeli law allows the uh, Jewish Israelis to claim um, lands um, and to order uh, evictions uh, of Palestinians uh, in, the, uh, in, in the eastern part of the city that was occupied uh, back in 1967, the same law does not allow Palestinians 
uh, who were uh, uh, displaced uh, during the 1948 war from claiming their homes and their how and their lands and the, all their properties uh, that are in the western part of Jerusalem. So the Israeli law uh, works only uh, in, a, in one way. Uh, only one part of the population, only one part of one type of people can make claims while the others cannot make claims. And this is very uh, unfair. And, you know, I should note here, actually, that many of the families in Sheikh Jarrah specifically, but uh, also some in Silwan, who are living in the uh, uh, lands that are claimed by the um, uh, uh, Jewish families, uh, Jewish settlers or settler organizations, um, are actually refugees from West Jerusalem uh, and from other areas in what became Israel in 1948. So these people were displaced, they own homes, and I remember very clearly uh, until today, uh, uh, the, old, the, the, the lady uh, who was displaced uh, from her home back in 2009, um, you know, her claim was like, okay, if, if they say that this land um, uh, um, belongs to this Jewish settler organization and they want to kick me out of my house, that's fine. But I have a house in West Jerusalem, why don't I um, get access to my house and then, you know, if, 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 if there is fair play, let's, let it be for everyone. But no, that's not the way the Israeli law works. The Israeli law, uh, uh, law and uh, court system displaced her again for, you know, for a second time uh, after the first displacement back in 1948. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, did not care about leaving her homeless uh, during that situation. So I remember the tent that was uh, put in, 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 in the Sheikh Jarrah um, neighborhood back in uh, 2008 and 2009, which Israel eventually destroyed uh, at, at the end of that period. So this is what is going on. It's a state that continuously works on Judaizing uh, the land, and that's not a term that I am inventing. It's an Israeli term. They say we Judaize the land because, you know, it's a colonial power that has that functions in this way, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's... From the, the first thing you said, you know, making connecting this to 1948 is really important. A lot of us who have been, you know, working for many years on looking at Israeli policy in East Jerusalem have thought about it as post-67 policy. But what we're seeing today, as you point out, is really about a continuation of 48. You effectively, what people are calling real estate disputes in, in my analysis is it's not rule of law, which would protect everyone equally and hold people to the same set of standards. It's rule by law, where you have Israeli laws that effectively are set up now to dispossess Palestinians again, based on 1948 claims by Jewish landowners, while preventing them from making those 1948 claims themselves. Um, it, it, it's the antithesis of a straightforward real estate dispute, um, to be clear. Um, the 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 question I think for, let, let's, let's just, I wanna come back to this because there's a lot to unpack here, but I wanna ask a little bit more broadly about the significance of Jerusalem and the city for Palestinians. And obviously I'm sure most people who are, who are listening or watching this know, you know, the, the Haram al-Sharif, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, third holiest site to Islam, but Jerusalem has special, special resonance for Palestinians. And as a Palestinian Jerusalemite, can you, can you talk about that? And, and Inez, you're on deck because based on what he says, I want to come to you and talk to you about what mobilization of Palestinians looks like in Jerusalem and why Jerusalem is that focal point for mobilization. So if you could go briefly, Munir, and then back to you, Inez. Yes, thank you. Indeed, um, um, 
Jerusalem is certainly uh, the heart of Palestine. Um, it is uh, the, it, the holiness of Jerusalem is certainly plays an important role in this. Uh, it's holiness to the uh, Muslims, it's holiness to the Christians, it's holiness to the Jews. Uh, all of uh, these three religions uh, have been part of the Palestinian community uh, historically, um, and uh, uh, therefore um, uh, the presence of um, of all these, uh, um, you know, um, of all of this um, sanctity to uh, uh, of the city uh, has played an important role. But that's not um, uh, only what is there for Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been um, historically uh, leading um, uh, Palestine um, culturally, um, politically. Um, you know, the, uh, usually um, the eyes of Palestinians turn to Jerusalem um, uh, historically for, for um, you know, uh, of, uh, of, of leadership. Uh, so it is very important for Palestinians. It is heart of Palestine. Um, and, um, um, and not only, of course, Palestine, but, um, but certainly, you know, um, uh, uh, Palestine. Um, people um, uh, see it as, uh, as a jewel um, uh, to them. And they, uh, in, in all cases, uh, feel that it is the most important um, uh, factor um, uh, that would make an, you know, the, dif the big difference in any uh, sort of settlement uh, or peace or negotiation or, um, because Palestine is meaningless uh, without Jerusalem. Uh, in a way, um, it's not about only um, you know pieces of land here and there. It's about what Jerusalem represents, um, um, certainly for the religious people, but also uh, from the uh, political sense. Jerusalem has been the center of this uh, area for centuries, uh, even before um, uh, the British mandate uh, uh, came here. Um, it was always an important city during the Ottoman period, during the uh, Fatimid period, during the Abbasi period, during the Umayyad <laughs> period, and even before. Uh, Jerusalem is Jerusalem, right? Um, and um, uh, and because of that significance, um, nobody can you know can imagine uh, anything going forward uh, without Jerusalem. But also. Uh, since um, uh, the Israeli uh, control over Jerusalem, uh, Israel has been always applying um, oppressive policies in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been the reason for, I would say, all the intifadas that took place in the past. All the Palestinian uprisings uh, uh, started in Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem moves the hearts of everybody. And, um, and therefore, um, يعني, nobody can imagine um, any um, peace taking place in any equation uh, without making sure justice is served in Jerusalem first. Thank you. Thanks. And Inez, talking about the, the, the intifadas, the role that Jerusalem has played in the past and uprisings, and also just more broadly about the role of mass mobilization, because Jerusalem is, is not just special because it's Jerusalem in the current political context, it's the unique city amongst Palestinians where you have a Palestinian population that is able to access Jerusalem and its holy sites. It, there's almost a complete absence of the PA PLO, so it's kind of on its own. Um, and what we've seen in the past few years has been what seems like pretty extraordinary grassroots 
uh, mobilization and organizing. Can you talk about this a little bit and what it means for Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line? Yes, um, I think the you know the the decades of I think all these settler colonial um, policies and practices and rules that that I think Israel has has put in place unfortunately have also they've changed and they've they've they are still trying to change the geography the space you know the public space the private spaces the landscape all of this to make it a Jewish city. Um, and I think it's that's what's sad. It's because I think a lot of the Palestinians feel like it's it's our barricade. I think it's a barricade. We have to defend uh, the identity of Jerusalem. It's a constant battle to try and keep, you know, the the cultural uh, scene, the cultural identity, the you know the historical uh, aspects. Because you know Israel is changing names of streets. They are changing names of places. They are, uh, you know, they have uprooted uh, indigenous trees to plant new forests. They have erased villages to put uh, forests, uh, you know, um, on, on top of villages. So all of this has profoundly changed also the reality of the city. So I think there is partly what lives in the heart of every Palestinian and probably a lot of the Christians around the world and the Muslims around the world and the Jews around the world of like this ideal Jerusalem that we would all want to see this free Jerusalem and the reality today, which is a terrible sight. It's actually, it's a difficult city to live in, you know, um, and, and, and we, you know, it's, it's basically apartheid and, and settler colonialism in, in condensed manner. And I think uh, this is where, you know, Jerusalemites always feel this important, um, yeah, this important role that they have to, to defend their city. And I think more and more because they've been isolated. Again, these policies have made so that uh, there is no Palestinian representation. There is no Palestinian official representation or political representation in Jerusalem. Um, the rest of the Palestinians, most of them cannot come freely to Jerusalem. Um, so, and then you have the Palestinian citizens of Israel who we also so came with, you know, hundreds of, of uh, you know, hundreds of, of people came in buses and so on to also go and pray on Friday at Al-Aqsa and kind of show solidarity. But I think this fragmentation of the space and the fact that the Jerusalemites are being annexed and under siege, you know, constantly, um, makes it that they feel a special role to organize themselves in the civil society uh, without the presence of the PLO or the PA and, you know, with any sort of initiative that can, again, defend their city. So whether it's a demonstration in Sheikh Sharah and a, maybe a meal in the street and kind of organizing a, a, a whole meal for everyone, whether it's, you know, trying to build a, a bookshop or, or maintain a bookshop or a library somewhere, whether it's to maintain the theater open and have like actually theater productions coming from Palestine uh, being shown. So all of this is part of, I think, the, the Jerusalem identity to try and preserve uh, that, uh, that identity. And I think part of what we've seen in terms of mobilization and gatherings is also part of that, of that will to to, to feel that, you know, to, to make sure that people see that we exist and, and make sure we're not erased. 
Thanks. And I think the world has seen some really remarkable, um, the, the images of protest, the images last year of, of sort of mass prayers in the old city in protest of Israel changing some of the security arrangements on the Haram Sharif. Um, that, that it's, it's sort of, a, a, and so a lot of this also looks to be led more and more by younger generation that is, um, very engaged and very in organizing, self-organizing remarkably and 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 nonviolently. It's 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 quite extraordinary. It's, some some of the the visuals that have come out, I think, have been really powerful for the world to see. Munir, um, I want to pick up on something that Inez just said, which is the word apartheid, which is very much in the news lately with the the amnesty report. And of course, Palestinians have used this word for decades. The world is catching up to this reality. Um, for folks who might be listening, who are thinking, well, it can't be apartheid in Jerusalem. Palestinians live there. They work there. You guys are on Zoom. Nobody's stopping you from speaking. I mean, come on. So can you unpack? Um, Inez just said that, that in effect, you know, Jerusalem is a microcosm of the apartheid that faces Palestinians. Can you unpack what that, you didn't use those exact words, but that's basically what you said, I think. Um, can you unpack what, she, what that means and what that looks like in Jerusalem? Briefly. Yes, indeed, and uh, um, this is an important question, in fact. Um, the term apartheid in international law means the following. Uh, when a state uses its um, legal system to systematically uh, create a regime of domination uh, of one racial group over another racial group, and then uh, maintains this domination also through um, uh, uh, the regime and through practices of the regime. When we look at Palestine in general, and I mean, Palestine, Israel, uh, the whole, uh, everything under the uh, Israeli um, uh, legal system, uh, we can see that the system has been, uh, you know, since 1948, but also um, became even stronger after 1967 and has become stronger with time, uh, has been um, continuously um, um, designing policies and engineering policies in order to change the demographic situation in different places, um, to uh, keep an upper hand of the um, Jewish community over all other communities in Palestine and Israel. Um, and Jerusalem is indeed um, a place where this uh, can be seen in many different forms. So, for example, in Jerusalem, um, Palestinians uh, are considered by Israel, although we have been here for centuries. Uh, my family, at least, has been, I know, for centuries, and most families have been here for centuries, if not decades, if not, uh, you know, we have been here for centuries, if not millennia, in some cases. Um, we are considered foreigners. Um, we are given a residency status. Um, our children don't got, get that residency automatically. Uh, in order to uh, pass it to our children, we have to go through very complicated bureaucratic tests that the Ministry of Interior imposes upon us. Um, and sometimes we pass the tests and sometimes we don't. And in cases that we don't, uh, we are left with uh, individuals who not only are stateless, because you know most of us in Jerusalem are stateless. We have no citizenship 
whatsoever, uh, but not only stateless, we become statusless, no status at all. So there are people in Jerusalem, thousands of people in Jerusalem who have no legal status. They live here without anything. Um, so, sorry, so, just, other- so just to be clear, I, as a Jewish American, could make Aliyah yeah. tomorrow and have a passport and legal right to live anywhere in East or West Jerusalem under Israeli law. And your children, yes. born in Jerusalem, and many generations of your family could be denied the right to reside in Jerusalem if Israel deems that you as the family don't, you, you fail one of their center of life arguments or something, correct? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And not only that, if you um, come as a tourist and get a tourist visa to uh, visit Jerusalem and you, you're pregnant, you have a baby huh? while you're a tourist. Because your child is a child of a Jew, they automatically become citizens of Israel, unless you go for a process in order to uh, retreat from that. Uh, There are slim exceptions for that. So uh, a child of a Jew is born in Israel, is a citizen, even if their parents are not citizens, right? So this is the way the Israeli law uh, works. Uh, But uh, our children um, need to go through complicated tests uh, that sometimes pass and sometimes don't. Um, when we marry um, uh, someone from the West Bank or from Gaza, uh, there, is, there are barriers that the Israeli law has created and developed over time um, in order to uh, restrict um, these married couples from living under the same roof in areas that Israel considers part of Israel. Um, whereas the Israeli law of return um, gives also the right to Aliyah, not only to the Jew, but to the parents of the Jew, to the grandparents of the Jew, to the children of the Jew, to the grandchildren of the Jew, to the spouse of the Jew. So, you know, the right of return, as it is defined in the Israeli law of return, um, uh, gives uh, not only the Jew, but also non-Jews around this person uh, a right uh, uh, to, um, uh, to automatic um, uh, immigration and full rights. Uh, as compared to, um, um, you, you know, to Palestinians who, you know, we've lived here for generations and suddenly we are treated as unwanted guests, unwanted immigrants. Um, the Ministry of Interior is a disgusting place um, that we uh, hate to visit, but we have to visit it once in a while to renew our documents um, regularly. And uh, this is a place where people are treated very badly. They are uh, always the time. Uh, keeping um, documents, uh, every family does not lose a, a water bill or an electricity bill or a, a tax bill or anything like that. You always make sure that you are very organized in keeping uh, years back of all of these bills because you don't know which Israeli office is going to ask you for evidence uh, at some point in the future. So. Uh, the Palestinian Jerusalemite keeps walking around with lawyers and with bags of documents in order to uh, uh, simply survive in their city. Uh, the Israeli um, um, uh, regime uh, treats our political uh, activity and our um, uh, you know, uh, human rights defense and our cultural activities in many cases as um, unwanted, uh, at best case scenarios as unwanted activities. And in some cases like now, they have declared six Israeli, uh, six Palestinian organizations, including three of them human rights organizations as terrorist organizations. So um, the Palestinians are not only uh, unable to practice 
um, their culture and their um, uh, right to uh, freedom of expression and assembly, but also uh, are finding a lot of difficulty in, um, in, in simply surviving in this. So uh, this is, uh, and also I mentioned earlier, home demolitions. I mentioned how um, uh, the treatment when it, uh, some of the areas, right, of the treatment when it comes to um, uh, claiming your lands back in, in West Jerusalem versus in East Jerusalem. Um, but then I, I can go on confiscation for public use, for example. Uh, in most cases, you will find that um, Palestinian land is targeted for that, and the beneficiaries of, of that are uh, settlers. Um, um, with security um, uh, regulations, you will find that many Palestinians are given uh, high sentences for uh, silly crimes um, um, while you don't see the same um, uh, when it comes to the uh, Israeli community, obviously. So all of that will, uh, you know, shows uh, very clearly, and there is a lot more, believe me, I can talk for hours about different policies and how they are uh, implemented. Uh, and these are only, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg that I'm trying to uh, uh, condense in, 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 in the minutes that I have. Uh, but all of that will show how this regime is um, working um, in order to keep this domination. And Jerusalem is only part of uh, the rest of, the, of, of, of Palestine. It's, it's separated um, with a wall from the rest of the uh, uh, West Bank. Uh, our families and relatives and friends and from the West Bank cannot visit us uh, here because there is a wall that... Uh, you know, uh, so all of that is, uh, and and then when you look at the rest of the picture, when you look at the West Bank, Gaza, the Naqab, uh, the Galilee, um, and you will and and you analyze all these as the Amnesty report actually did uh, uh, quite successfully, um, and see how all of these policies are playing, you will certainly conclude uh, that there is an apartheid regime um, that is functioning uh, in this area. Um, and the only way forward um, uh, to peace and to stability and to uh, justice is to start by dismantling this regime and you know, creating a democracy, introducing, for example, a new principle that the Israeli law, Israeli law does not uh, deal with until today. It's a principle called equality. You know, uh, This principle is taken for granted in the rest of the world. Uh, the Israeli law um, and court system uh, does not take this into consideration. So uh, once we um, deal with that, then everything becomes easier afterwards, I hope. Thanks. I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you know, one, one thing I've always found striking when, when I hear people talk about rule of law or real estate dispute, I've, I've done a lot of work for years following Israeli settlement activity in the West Bank and outposts. And if you look at how Israeli governments and Israeli law has dealt with the illegal, all settlements are illegal under international law, but the, 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 the activities by settlers that even Israel views as illegal, building outposts on private Palestinian land. And you see that for the past decade, successive Israeli governments and Israeli courts have basically contorted themselves to try to find a legal basis to, to allow settlers to maintain their hold on land that is clearly, I mean, even under Israeli law, been stolen. And it's always been framed in you're trying to regularize or regulate, right? What is So you don't have upheaval for these poor families that maybe didn't know they were breaking the law. There's a lot of concern for not having upheaval for them 
when it comes to Palestinians, I'm sorry, the law says X and we will literally come in and physically throw you out. There's no concern. Um, not just the law is just not not just merely is aimed at dispossessing Palestinians, but in parallel, the other hand of the law is actively trying to find ways to to legalize the, the active dispossession by settlers. It's, it's just quite striking when you put them together. Um, I want to I, I have two more things I want to cover. And again, if either of you want to jump in or if there's other things you want to talk about, please do. And by the way, if you're just joining us, I know this we've been talking for a while. Um, I'm Laura Friedman, Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I am here speaking with Inez Abdurazik from PIPD and Munir Lusebe from Jerusalem, from Al-Quds University, um, talking about things in Jerusalem. I want to come back to Inez and talk about the big escalation last year. Um, which really focused on Jerusalem in the, in the first instance, but eventually became something, there's an escalation between Israel and Gaza, and then we had escalation across Israel inside the Green Line. And, and that really did start focused on Sheikh Sharah and um, the Hanama Sharif, right? We had during Ramadan and all sorts of things happening. Can you talk about that? That became what we've, we've heard called the unity intifada, where you actually had a unified protest um, across the whole of the area with Palestinians, Gaza, West Bank, Jerusalem, and inside the Green Line. Can you talk about what that meant and, and where that stands today um, and, and even connected to what we're seeing in Jerusalem with the at least current efforts by the Israeli government to, to not have things, um, or at least seemingly trying to avoid having a repeat of that this year. Yeah, thanks, Lara. I, um, I think I will say that it actually links back to the discussion on apartheid, because I think part of the um, explanation is this uh, level of control and this system that is, you know, uh, maintaining uh, control over the Palestinians, and then leads to challenges when it comes to organizing. So I think the two really uh, go somehow together. And so I would say that, you know, um, the youth that you saw really coming out in, in Bab al-Hamoud, like in Damascus Gate and in, in Al-Aqsa and in Haram al-Sharif, um, a, a lot of these youth and then the groups that also then started coming from other parts of Palestine, including from Lid and Haifa and Yaffa, um, converging in Jerusalem, a lot of the why you know everyone is is going to the streets and 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 protesting or chanting or just be there is also part of that frustration of that growing up under the system where you're born considered a demographic threat or a security threat and so imagine a young person who you know has this is is so angry and frustrated because your life from when you go to school to when your parents go to work it's basically you have this, this you know, you have Israel and you have the Jerusalem municipality and the Israeli government that control every aspect of your life and you have zero agency to decide for yourself. You pay taxes, you pay all the taxes to the Israeli government and you live in a, in a land that's controlled by them and the services you go to schools and so on that are either controlled by the municipality or somehow under the acceptance of the municipality and so on. And you know your streets are not uh, clean and 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 not uh, renewed because the municipality doesn't invest in your neighborhood. You live in a ghettoized environment, so you grow up in that. In the sense that 
you have zero agency, you're not represented. And on top of that, your city is being stolen from you and, and, and your you know, holy sites are under attack. And so I think that um, what, what I think triggered a lot is when you know, Israeli soldiers or the army decides to put you know, uh, the gates that was in 2017, they decided to put these electronic gates and now they decided to kind of close the space of Damascus Gate, which is one of the only remaining public space where Palestinians can just go and have coffee and, and gather and, 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 and discuss. And this is also stolen from you. This is also you know, under the control and told like, you're a threat. You're not going to use that little tiny public space that remains for you. And so I think all of that combined with uh, you know, attacks on religious sites that is always you know, uh, I think uh, even uh, more emotionally um, um, pr problematic for people um, then led to all these, uh, to all these, I think, the surprising. And, and clearly, I think Palestinian younger generations are defying that fragmentation that has been imposed. And, and, and it continues to, to today. I think there, what happened last year is really the um, the willingness to to uh, stop and and go beyond that imposed separation of the green line, because the Palestinian identity and the Palestinian collective imagination, collective identity, has never been about the green line. You know, there has been Palestinians uh, in Haifa and Yaffa. You have families uh, from Yaffa who have relatives in Gaza who were bombed, and so you know these are the same families. You have some families who were displaced in 48 uh, to Gaza, who became refugees in Gaza and who were under bombs. And, and so this solidarity is evident because it also comes from family ties. And so I think this is what has been created, that sense that we're all, we're all fighting the same thing. Israel has created this sophisticated way of fragmenting us geographically in the space and also administratively. We all deal with our own different things. I'm, uh, I'm a daughter of refugees. I deal with my own issues when it comes to papers and, and, and where I'm from and my family not being able to return. You have the West Bank people, you know, have certain different hurdles under the military law and you have the Jerusalemites who are aliens, foreigners in their own city, etc. And Gaza under blockade and complete siege. So everyone has their, you know, has been put under exactly a different way of, of control to fragment us, and I think people defy that. Now, I wouldn't romanticize, uh, I think, the part of the organizing of all that, uh, in the sense that I think the challenges, uh, specifically because Israel has so much sophisticated control, uh, is very difficult to kind of organize a movement, because the moment you go, the moment you go out, the moment you start organizing, the, uh, you are under surveillance constantly, and then you know the the, the I think the Israeli uh, forces and Israeli government can can really come after you. So you know I have cameras now outside just my house, and it's all over East Jerusalem. You have all these cameras that survey the whole space and can record the voice. Um, you the moment you start being uh, you know active and and kind of meeting a certain kind of people, you can be arrested. And I have friends who are arrested and just can stay a week in detention and we have no idea why. It's just intimidation, just to make sure they just, you know, don't go further and are deterred from political organizing. So all of this to say that I think, I mean, I wish we had, a, you know, a more organized national movement, but I think 
it has been crushed so badly. And also uh, the fact that the PA has replaced the PLO and has become this crooked uh, you know, entity that is basically subcontracting the Israeli occupation um, is, is not, um, I think, facilitating that whole coming together of a new national movement. And so that's where I think I would just not to romanticize the existence of, of an organization, but I think it's these grassroots popular pockets of resistance everywhere that we'll see continuing to emerge in the coming months, in the coming year. Uh, in, in, you know, in, again, in, in the whole territory between the river and the sea, um, with people who are ready to defy at the local level uh, or coming to Jerusalem or, you know, uh, just more in sync also in the digital space, uh, the um, generally the, you know, the, the apartheid and the settler colonial oppression. Thank you. And, and for folks, when, when, when Inez is talking about um, surveillance, I think it's worth reminding people that last summer, um, around the time of the, the upheaval and the protests, there was a phenomenon where Palestinians in Jerusalem, large numbers, received threatening text messages <laughs> from Israeli intelligence, which said in Arabic, and I'm reading, hello, you have been identified to so have taken part in violent acts at Alaska Aqsa Mosque we will punish you, signed Israeli intelligence. And there were Israeli lawyers who challenged that. But I mean, the idea that you're being constantly surveilled is not, um, it, it's by no means um, an exaggeration. Um, and that's, I think for, for folks who are, you know, looking at, at what, what's happening on the ground, it's important to, to factor in the, the constant peril that the Palestinians face um, lifting their heads at all in this. Um, I want to come back to you, Munir, and this is this can be the last question. We're, we're coming close to the end of our time. And I, I want to ask you to comment on normalization. And, and this is, you know, if you want to talk about the Abraham Accords or more broadly normalization, but I want to talk about it particularly in Jerusalem, because if you look at some of the visuals, some of the text messages and pictures on social media um, that have come out where you have... Um, nationals from Arab states that are normalizing with Israel, making high profile visits to Jerusalem, making visits to the, the Haram al-Sharif. Um, this is then protested to some degree by Palestinians. It, it almost seems like in the name of normalization, there's an effort to really um, put Islam and the Islamic identities in Jerusalem squarely in the center and, 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 and in a sense, break it, break it off from the Palestinian struggle. Um, or, or make it seem as if the, the Palestinians are, are, are unfairly trying to monopolize Islam as a political move against the rest of the region. Can, can you talk about that a little bit from the perspective of a Jerusalemite who I, I assume is watching this um, closely? Uh, yes. I mean, look, unfortunately, normalization has been um, a very sad development uh, in the history of the region. Um, it is, um, you know, there is a lot of injustice ongoing here. And the traditional position of the regional governments um, over the past decades has been, um, we support Palestine, we support uh, Palestinian rights, um, we uh, will only normalize, that's in, you know, in 2002, we will only normalize when this issue has been resolved with the peace agreement with the Palestinians. So and when you say 2002, you mean the, the Arab Peace Initiative? Yes. The Arab Peace Initiative, and yeah. 
Um, and, you know, all of these things seem to be, um, you know, um, good supporting um, leverages, I would say, um, in order to, um, at the end, reach a final um, peaceful um, agreement, uh, regardless of, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think that this process was ever going to take us for a peaceful agreement because of the way it was designed, but let's put this aside for a minute uh, for, for the sake of this conversation. Um, normalization um, came um, at a time that you don't understand why is it coming right now? Is it only because of American pressure? Are there other interests? What about justice? What about the just cause that we have been talking about? Um, you know, we, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, very surprised and sad to see that these countries are um, ignoring all the information that they know. They themselves are receiving a lot of, a lot of Palestinian refugees uh, since 1948 and, and 1967. And um, so they know better, uh, actually. And the fact that they just um, normalized their relationship with Israel um, was sad. But also uh, the fact that um, this normalization uh, um, ignores the fact that the city of Jerusalem is occupied and that is it is under um, uh, this oppressive regime and that uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque that uh, some of uh, uh, the visitors uh, want to come and visit under Israeli uh, uh, supervision uh, and even with Israeli company uh, somehow and as being the guests of the Israelis uh, makes it even worse. Um, it is in a way um, in, in our fear, especially in Jerusalem, um, that this is some sort of an implicit recognition of the Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem. In fact, why would the Abrahamic um, uh, uh, agreements uh, mention Al-Aqsa Mosque in the first place? Isn't it outside the territory of the state of Israel according to international law, it's occupied territory? So why is it in, in why is it mentioned? Why is it a topic? If you want to normalize with Israel, uh, while I'm not happy with that, but uh, leave Jerusalem alone. Um, and uh, therefore, um, it really worries me that not only um, the, the fact that they are uh, doing this uh, for whatever interests they have, maybe with the US, maybe with Israel, maybe with, you know, that's one thing. But the other thing is um, when it is stretched further than it should, and when it starts involving holy places um, like Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, it becomes much more worrying um, uh, to us. So um, I'm very sad, especially now, uh, the world is gradually, maybe slowly, uh, but, but I'm sure that as time goes by, uh, will gradually more and more understand and then recognize uh, the presence of an apartheid regime. Um, and at the time that we are hoping for this momentum to, uh, to be built, um, uh, we can see that there are some countries that are ignoring the injustices uh, completely. And this is worrying us very much. And certainly, certainly, it doesn't help uh, for any progress of any sort of peace uh, in this region. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is only by applying sufficient pressure on Israel 
in order to understand and realize um, that it cannot continue um, applying an apartheid regime on the Palestinian people and at the same time um, expect everybody to be its friends. Uh, because look, Palestinians will not accept to live under apartheid, regardless of what people say, people think. You can, you know, we want peace. Nobody wants peace more than Palestinians. That's for sure. Uh, this is something, a dream uh, uh, we have. But peace cannot come at the expense of our human dignity. Uh, we don't feel that we are less human than um, uh, any other uh, race or religion or uh, group in this world. And we're, you know, we, we, we will not be able to uh, call uh, our uh, silence peace because that's the way it is being marketed right now. Peace is basically keeping the fragmentation that Ines talked about now of the Palestinian people into small um, uh, Bantu stands uh, with uh, some sorts of self-rule here and there. Um, and uh, and the continuation of the situation. And for us, this is not peace. This is a continuation uh, of, of an apartheid regime that we will continue to resist, whether, you know, even if we are weak and poor and we don't have the means right now to uh, end this, but we will continue resisting it with our words and with our loud voices. Thank you. And, and I think the world is paying some attention. And the I will say the, the difference from now, now compared to say 10 years ago, when you know protesters, there's video of how Israel is treating nonviolent protesters. There's video of, of police um, abusing protesters, taking away Palestinian flags as if it's an act of terrorism to hold up a flag, which by the way is entirely legal, even under Israeli law. I do think some of that is changing and, and the shift in the recognition of apartheid I think is a big piece of that, which is probably why it scares um, Israel and many of its supporters so much. Um, we're gonna have to stop it here. I could talk to both of you for another two hours. Thank you so much, Inez and Munir for joining us today. Um, and I really am looking forward to, to digging into this deeper with you and looking at other things you've written and said on this. I wanna thank all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for more content on all things related to Israel and Palestine. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date on what we're up to. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of the podcast, including this one on YouTube. Um, and with that, I'm Laura Friedman signing off for now until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.